welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. Really excited for this episode because I get to sit down with the Dr. Robin Dr. DeRosa, PhD. She's the Director of Interdisciplinary Studies at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire, where their state motto, if you didn't know this, their state motto is live free or die. Yes, that's their state motto. Pretty cool. Anyway, Thanks for joining us, for spending the time. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I think you're going to enjoy every episode. I think I'd say that every time we do an intro on this one, but it's absolutely true. Thanks again for taking the time. We'll catch you on the other side. Take care. So I press record and here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. I am so excited with this episode because I have the opportunity to sit down and chat with the Robin DeRosa. Um, Everyone should know who you are. uh, And if they don't, well, they need to. They need to get their heads out of their out of their books and look around a little <laughs> bit. And um, Robin, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. And I will tell you that uh, one time an ex-boyfriend's father looked me up on the Internet and sent me a note and said, I just wanted to say I'm so proud of all you're doing. And it turns out he he had looked up a different Robin DeRosa, who is actually a writer for USA Today and does do really wonderful work. So I I don't know if I'm the Robin DeRosa, but I, it was a very awkward thing to have to correct him. Yeah, exactly. Well, in my books, you're the Robin DeRosa. Thank you, Tim. I also like your Twitter handle, Dr. Robin, Dr. DeRosa, PhD. Um, yeah, so I, I bring that out when it's only when it's needed, which, you know, everybody knows it was needed. So, yeah, well, I noticed that I noticed the timing of the switch to that Twitter handle. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think at school, everybody knows me as Robin, including my students. Um, but my gosh, it is it was reminiscent of my grandmother when I got mm-hmm. my Ph.D. saying, she was very proud, but she said, my granddaughter's a doctor, but not a real one. And I thought, oh, gosh. <laughs> um, but particularly as a woman and, you know, as a woman in, who works in tech sometimes now, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's important to uh, feel proud of all that you've accomplished. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. Like, I, I don't care that it's and who comes up with this idea that it's not a real doctor, or, you know, like, what does that even mean? Like, well, I know what that means, but it gets me all fired up because it's like, okay, so the time you spent to go and get that degree really doesn't matter unless you, you know, deliver babies or you can sew somebody up or you can write you know, a prescription. I haven't had like, the opportunity, but I'm not saying I couldn't deliver a baby or sew someone <laughs> up. So it, it, it depends on the opportunities that, you know, I'm afforded and you, exactly. know, you, can, you can't even imagine what I might be capable of doing. To. Oh, well, I, I wouldn't put it past you. Cause you know, I have to tell you a little story because I, I love uh, the New Hampshire area, the New England area. Um, I've been there for a few conferences and a few training sessions and, uh, I flew into Boston and uh, my first time there, I flew into Boston and I loved the, the, 
the, the flight of the aircraft over the bay and we come in and first time to Boston, my eyes are all big. Right. And, uh, there's this guy with a, a blacked out suburban with my name on a placard. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. Get in the suburban and we're driving up some highway coming out of Boston. We're going into, into New Hampshire and going to Nashua. And, uh, and I, I, it's, it's amazing. And we get, we get to the, the state border and you cannot miss the state sign. Like I'm used to like little signs here in British Columbia, Canada, where, you know, we don't want to do anything big and bold. It seems like, um, unless it's cannabis related, but, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going into New Hampshire and there's this, this, this sign as big as a Boeing 747. Welcome to New Hampshire live free or die. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I did not know what the state motto was. Right. And oh my goodness. Well, now with the, uh, the controversy over masks, we are taking that quite literally. And we mm. have a contingent of folks who is currently protesting our Republican governor who actually did put a mask mandate in for the state yeah. And they are saying they do not want their freedoms taken away. And they apparently actually meant it when they said live free or die. And uh, and they're going for it. So, they're you know, you got, you got to give credit to people who stand behind the motto with oh. the full force of their convictions. <laughs> Mercy. Yeah, well, it led to a whole discussion about guns. And, and oh, like, so if yeah. I have a gun, can I go into a bank? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, can I go into like a Walmart? And I'm, yep. I'm like, well, that. Okay. <laughs> I find your can Canadian shock to be endearing, Tim, oh, but okay. here in the U.S. of A., um, <laughs> not only can you bring your gun into Walmart, but Walmart will probably try to upsell you on a better gun. I yeah, mean, it's exactly. only recently that they've pulled back on that. So, oh, yeah, nice. it's um, it's interesting times for sure. And, you know, I've been watching with the news, you know, we have a very strong sort of libertarian mm -hmm. strain up here in New Hampshire. And um I wondered if the insurrection at the Capitol and especially now the news that's coming out about, you know, how really truly violent it was um, yeah. might quiet some of the yammering about, um, you know, the, the way the left is infringing on our rights by demanding things like public health measures. Right. Um, but so far, not so much. So, yeah, it's 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 a complicated time. The United States is I mean, you were saying the other day when you invited me to do this, that that, you know, surely we would have some things to talk about. Yeah. But the last couple of weeks here in the U.S. Um, have been hard to imagine. And your listeners will probably hear us talking, you know, a couple of weeks hence from now. Yep. And I can only imagine what will happen in the interim. Um, yeah. What other things. Yeah. Well, by the time listeners hear this episode, um, president elect Biden will now be president Biden. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I remember watching that on TV. Well, no, sorry. Cause I don't watch TV. I, I, I follow stuff online a little bit and I'm, and I'm watching it and I'm, and at first I'm like, what, this can't be happening. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not very political. Like, to be honest with you, I'm the least political guy. I know the least amount of politics even in my own country, my own province, I'm like, okay, I, there was an election a little while ago. I voted. That's all good. But you know, I don't know all the ins and outs, but I'm watching this and I'm, I'm thinking this is insane. This is totally insane. And you know what it reminded me, Robin, it reminded me of when I first started my apprenticeship back uh, in 2001 
and watching what happened in New York. And I, I watched it live and I'm, and the feeling I had last week, or, you know, when people listen to this, the feeling I had watching that thing go down was very close to the feeling that I had September 11th. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? Oh man, what the snap is going on. But um, yeah, it, that's an interesting parallel actually, because um, one thing I think about is how many conversations there were with people um, after 9-11 and then, you know, now last week or so that this is not the America we know. This is not the America we thought we lived in. This is not, you know, this doesn't happen here. Um, and what's been interesting to me is the chorus of calls from, you know, people who generally don't have as big of a public megaphone saying, you know, actually, this is how things are here. And this is how it's been. And this is, you know, not surprising given America's, you know, <laughs> approach to being America. Um, one thing I'm really hoping, like, especially for those of us who are in education is that instead of, you know, we're talking about the Biden inauguration. And of course, I'm really happy to see that happening. Um, but on the other hand, before we went through the upheaval of Trump, I mean, the reason we went through the upheaval of Trump was not because we had some national aberration, but because that is what we grew, you know, out of the America that we are. So I think when when Biden comes in, we have to remember, like, it was his America <laughs> that gave us Trump. Um, so we're not really going into a a new utopian moment. We're going back to the moment that gave us all of this in the first place. So the question is now that some people's eyes have been opened, um, what are we going to do? What are we going to do differently? And I think about that for higher ed with COVID as well. You know, COVID didn't really transform higher ed or even K-12 into something, you know, horrible and difficult. It revealed a lot of the places where we had real problems in education. So, I mean, obviously a global pandemic is going to be horrible, um, but a lot of the parts of education in particular that were difficult were difficulties that were always laying there and that some students and families have been experiencing for a long, long time. So I'm just hoping now that we have a clearer lens on the systems that are out of whack maybe we don't go back to the before times and then we instead try to put the pieces back together in a slightly different way. Yeah. That's a good point you raised. Cause I've, I've often talked about COVID being a magnifying glass and it, it's horrible. Like, you know, we, we all know people that have gone through it and we may know of some people that didn't survive it and that's a reality of it. And I'm not downplaying or upplaying anything, but for me, educationally, especially in the, in the vocational education world, that before COVID happened, just to give us some context, context, like about a year and a half before COVID came in, I was speaking to my department and I'm like, listen, at that time, we all, we were all uh, guys in, the, in our department. Like, Gentlemen, listen, like we need to think about taking some of our stuff online. Like this is the trajectory. It, it been, it's been happening for you know decades, but in the vocational world, it's always been pushed against and go, well, how do you do practicals online? How do you do? And it's like, okay, well, you know, everything's figure outable. We can, we can figure this out. But at the time it was like, well, not sure if it's the right thing we should do. And, 
very slow to respond. And then for me, I remember the date, March 10th, because in March 9th, I was downtown Vancouver doing some stuff with some millwrights. And then March 10th, boom, everything's locked down. And within a couple months, hey, guess what? We're doing blended models now. <laughs> hey, guess what? We're, we're doing video. Hey, guess what? We're doing discussion forums. And, and oh, and hey, guess what? They're not cheating. Right. It's right. Yeah, right. And, and that was before, you know, the, I mean, we can touch on this too a little bit, but that was before the, the massive surveillance issues started coming up. Right. And uh, so it's, it's, I, it's, I agree with you. COVID for us has been this magnifying glass that has exposed the gaps uh, and the things that we've veneered over in, in, in the hopes that we, we will come back to that later. Right. Um, because yeah. uh, in the TVET yeah, world, I like, yeah, yeah, no, go ahead, finish. Yeah, so in the TVET world, we have we go through changes every three, four years because we have third party certifications and you know, all these things are external to the system and we have to respond to that. And and so, in some cases, faculty are always evolving their material to respond to those changes. And then we had a huge national change in the way that trades is done. So that that's taken five, six years to get three quarters of the way through. Right. And so naturally it goes, well, you know, blended stuff, we'll put it on the back burner or we'll just leave it in the cupboard. We won't even take it out and even open the can on that one. But uh, now COVID comes and it's like, boom. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's really interesting with the trades too. And we talk about that also um, maybe particularly with the sciences and, you know, lab-based experiences and, um, you know, COVID sort of got us all thinking about online or not online. And suddenly a lot more people were, you know, either forced online or interested in online, depending on their attitudes at the time. Um, but it seems like it's, to me, the, the possible kernel out of this is that it's less about online or not online and more about responding to the reality of our students' needs. And so during COVID, the, a lot more of the need was was online. Um, but I think about how, you know, things like illness, for example, if someone were to have COVID, um, you know, illness is something that's with our students all the time. Um, you know, most students get seriously ill at some point when they're in school. Some students have chronic illnesses. Faculty have serious illnesses. Faculty are caretakers for people who have serious illnesses. So part of what I've been thinking about is, you know, maybe we overemphasize the modality a little too much and we should instead think about the, the ways that we need to be able to use curricular flexibility more. And then, you know, online becomes a, a part of that. And I like that COVID has got us thinking about agility and flexibility in terms of student need, as opposed to accreditation or market changes. Um, it's really squarely been, you know, I mean, definitely, my gosh, a lot of institutions are responding hugely to market pressure because COVID's put a real dent in our budgets. But, um, but at the center of it all is that students, you know, have to learn in, in different ways right now. And so we've got to be a little bit more flexible. I like that way of thinking about online as opposed to there's just something inherently better about online or worse about online. I think it's more about, you know, what's the context for this learner at this moment? And, you know, sometimes 
hybrid, sometimes online, sometimes face-to-face, they're all going to have their place, I think. Um, and COVID's been helpful in get, getting faculty talking about what those needs are. How has COVID affected um, Plymouth State University? Well, we, as we were chatting before we got started and, you know, you were talking about like delivery of um, food, like, can you order takeout? You know, like we are, I, at least, especially where I live, like we're very rural um, and that helped us quite a bit and, and is still helping us quite a bit because our population density is low. So what was really interesting is at least for the whole, um, you know, first turn, it, last March and then this whole fall, it's starting to change now, but we didn't actually have very much COVID up here. What we had was serious economic fallout from COVID. And within days of the pandemic closing things down, our students who tend to be, um, you know, we have a lot of Pell eligible students um, and lots of students living um, at or below poverty. And when things like um, bars and restaurants closed where they might have had their jobs, um, many of their parents were immediately out of work because they were, um, you know, we have a lot of big tourism industry. And um, so when lots of things closed down, what we really saw was students um, not so much worried about like, you know, Zooming, but worried about eating, (laughs) worried about living, you know, their their housing arrangements. Um, And then absolutely we had big issues with um, when students went home with broadband accessibility because they live in rural rural places. Um, Sometimes they don't have access to broadband um, or they can't afford it. So that that stuff transformed how we had to do teaching and learning even when we actually didn't have very high transmission rates. The college has mostly stayed face-to-face. It's been pretty effective because we have a really robust testing protocol to the credit of my institution. Um, The president of my institution is Donald Burks. Um, He's actually the brother of the coronavirus SAR in the United States, um, who's Dr. Deborah Burks. So we had kind of, I think, some pretty good advice about how to open (laughs) safely. And we've done a good job. However, I will put this caveat, and this is affecting a lot of institutions in the U.S. Many of our public institutions are not adequately funded by our state governments. And what that means is that like at Plymouth State, we get a very significant portion of our basic operating budget from room and board. So we actually can't even um, afford to close if we have to. I'm not saying we wouldn't if it got terrible, but if we close and we send students home as we did briefly last spring, we lose such significant revenue and that's what you know pays our basic bills. Um, so that kind of defunding of public education in the US is making a lot of faculty skeptical about how decisions are being made about what is safe and what isn't safe in, in um, our operations. So we, we've done pretty well, but it's a, it's a very tricky subject. Yeah. That's tricky waters to navigate when you have such an economic burden right behind your, uh, your educational decision-making processes. Right. And yeah. And in that, yeah, everyone wants to be safe, but you like, you know, that if you close, people are going to lose their jobs in your institution. Right. And right. And, and it's even, um, you know, because we are a regional 
public uh, college that's very rural. We serve um, what's called the North Country here in New Hampshire. Um, you know, lots of poverty in the North Country, very rural, very remote. If our institution doesn't manage to keep the lights on, um, we know that most students, especially poor students, go to school within 50 miles of their home. So you get concerned that if you can't sustain your institution, that you know, you're not going to be there to serve learners in the future. So it's really not just about like, oh, we got to keep our jobs or, you know, stay open. It, you know, you're really trying to balance on the head of a needle, a, a lot of competing needs that the that the area has. And, um, you know, there's just nationally in the U.S. such a push away from public funding to these more privatized solutions for for things. And I just don't see any way out of this unless we go back to a simple um, taxation uh, solution to, to get our colleges what they need to stay open. Sure, for sure. I mean, not directly related, correlatable, I guess is the right word. If that's a word, I just, I make words up once in a while, but uh, my oldest son. I can understand it. So you're good. (laughs) Okay, good. My, my, my son just graduated from college. He went to a community college near where we live, uh, worked his summer, saved up, paid it for, for his whole thing. um, Stayed at home. We, We did everything that we could to make it easier for him to pay for school. But you know, he had, he had, he had classmates that were working two jobs, taking full-time school, living on the, living with, with three or four other people in a place that probably shouldn't have held that many people. And I'm like, how, how do they make it? Like, how do they, how do they cope mentally, let alone just the logistics of, and, and they don't own a car. So they're taking transit and it's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that, that that's going on. And yet, I know that there's a, at least a third of even our own institutions, student population that are, our food anxiety uh, is a big issue. Shelter anxiety is a big issue. And when COVID first hit, we had, we had students in their cars in our parking lot because they didn't have Wi-Fi, And so they would come and of course they can't go to Starbucks. They can't, they can't go to their coffee shop. They can't go to a restaurant. And <laughs> it, 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 you would look across the school shut down, but you would look across the parking lot and there'd be, you know, the parking lots are half full because students are there using the Wi-Fi. Yeah, absolutely. We we've got similar things. Um, and I think when people talk, for example, about like COVID fatigue, you know, yes, everybody lives under a certain amount of stress during COVID. I mean, Lord knows my my regular anxiety disorder is, you know, much more significant during during COVID. But I think um, but people who live under economic precarity um, or, you know, with a disability or any of these things that are sort of so obviously compounded by COVID, you know, just to do the things that other people are taking for granted um, is so difficult. I I know a lot of my students, when the college closed and they lost their on-campus jobs or they lost their jobs, you know, in a restaurant or whatever, and they, you know, they immediately couldn't pay their bills. They immediately couldn't buy food. And so they went and got, you know, pretty high-risk jobs, like at grocery stores and um, gas stations and stuff. And, you know, you're just sort of thinking like, (laughs) 
they also want to stay home. You know, they also want to be safe and social distance. Um, but there's just a very horrible calculus that they needed to do in order to figure out how to how to get by. And I think the stresses of managing that, it's one of the reasons that why in our faculty development, we've taught really tried to help faculty understand so much um, what it means to care and why we need to think about compassion and care so much during COVID is that um, so many just regular things that people take for granted, um, you know, especially if you're like a full-time faculty member, especially like where I am here in a rural community where I can stay home and feel safe. Um, you know, that just was not the experience of a lot of our students. So, uh, that fatigue, I think, is 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 real. It's not just about, you know, the homework level or whatever. It's just constantly there, the stresses of of figuring out how to get by. So I think, uh, you know, everybody knows that the vaccine is not going to be a magic silver bullet and, you know, that this is all just going to be over one day. But please, Tim, like, let's just hope that this summer we really see a turn so that people can get some relief. And I think Canada's done a much better job um, dealing with, you know, what some people call economic stimulus. But I think a lot of people in the United States are just like, I don't really need to stimulate. I just, I need to eat. I, I want some, some money to replace, you know, all of the um, income I've lost. So I really am hoping that that things will improve soon, but it's been really hard for people who um, who are already dealing with, you know, regular challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. I, I often wonder about uh, PTSD, right? Like post-traumatic stress. And, uh, you know, this, this is not the same as a war. And yet it's, I feel isolated and I'm an extrovert by nature. I love hanging around people. I love going to a pub and having a beer and, you know, I, I love doing those things and I'm, I'm in my house for four days and it's driving me crazy and it affects me mentally. Right. And I teach, I teach two night school classes and half my class are international students that already have a hard time with the language and they're at home with parents who are working in high risk jobs. They've got siblings. And, and they're, they're, they're taking three, four classes this term as well as working full time yeah. and all this other stuff. And I'm like, what's yeah. the fallout going to be of this? So let's, yeah. let's, let's project ahead and go, okay, so eight, 10, 12 months down the road, 60, 70% of people are vaccinated. We have the herd immunity. Let's say this thing hasn't evolved into something more treacherous and dangerous. And we've, we've, we've turned the corner, quote unquote, turned the corner, right? But what's what's the fallout going to be mentally of people, and are we talking about that enough? And like higher ed, is are, are they talking about that with faculty as much as they are talking talking about with students? Is, is that on anybody's radar? Well, oh gosh, I mean, I hope so. And I, I think there's really two things I think about um, with what you're saying there. The first is, you know, the the absolutely devastating mental health crisis that we're in the middle of, and I think I see that most personally and I, you know, I won't go into too much detail because I don't want to tell stories that aren't mine to tell, but I have a, a teenager who's a senior in high school and, um, you know, it is an enormous challenge I, when I'm working with younger, you know, college students. Um, I think 
this window of insight I've had, you know, this past year with my own daughter has been helpful in making me realize, um, you know, how challenging it can be to try to develop into yourself during such a time of isolation. It's really, really difficult. And then you wrap that up with technology, um, you know, which as you know, I'm a big proponent of using all sorts of tech in all sorts of ways, but you know, the tech is extra important to child development at this point when our kids have to be online to receive parts of their education, to do their socializing and how that those spaces are mediated and organized um, is not always to the benefit of our kids. Um, and this is something that I've really wanted to do in faculty development is to say, when we're looking at the technologies that we're going to use for teaching and learning during COVID, let's not go with the shiniest, slickest, fastest thing that is ready to be installed today because that company is a multi-billion dollar company and they're ready to give it to you and, and off you go because we are going to develop into the humans that we are through these mediated spaces. So let's be intentional about deciding what we want to use and thinking about why we want to use it. Even if that means things are like kind of shittier for a while <laughs> as we clonk along. But I think, um, unfortunately, you know, just sort of mindlessly jumping into zoom as if, um, zoom like is, the way to interact online, you know, like just assuming that's just the natural thing. Of course, we're going to take video of ourselves and, you know, project that live. Like that's clearly how you build relationships online. Um, the only reason that seems so obvious and naturalized is that Zoom was positioned economically to compete in that market so effectively. And I'm really trying to get faculty to have a stronger voice in thinking about what kinds of technologies really work for learning. And I think it's actually pretty interesting to talk to faculty about Zoom because you really hear two things. One is, oh my God, thank God, you know, that we have this because otherwise what would I do? And the other is, wow, this is pretty horrible. Like I'm talking to a bunch of black boxes. My students don't seem responsive. I don't even know if they're there. I'm so exhausted at the end of a Zoom session. Like, what's wrong with this? So I think um, we just have to be really careful about not um, taking quick fixes that are actually going to grow into the natural way that things are. And instead, and you know this well, Tim, like, you know, you and some of your colleagues have just done great work really saying, okay, let, I know my field. I know the students that I teach. I know a little bit about technology. Let me really try to build an approach here that is going to work for these folks. Um, and, you know, and then we can figure out what tools to use. Um, it's a lot harder and a lot of faculty are intimidated by technologies. Um, so I understand that, but, uh, you know, things are moving really fast. The ed tech industry is a $19 billion industry. So in order for us to get what we need out of it, we are going to have to get more comfortable being uh, critical and, and really saying, you know, here, here's what we want. And, you know, there's some great activists, uh, you know, Chris Gilliard is a, a friend of mine and a mentor 
in particular, but you know, the activist community around surveillance technology, I think is really starting finally to get the message out to faculty about the kind of insidious messages that, you know, things like remote proctoring, you know, how that undermines the pedagogy, um, how it plays in with other kinds of damaging and racist surveillance culture, you know, like Black Lives Matter has really, you know, shown us about. So I think COVID has been um, unfortunately a buoy for the ed tech industry to get a foothold on selling us the products that make them the most money. And I just, one of my, one of my missions in life is to get faculty to just step back and be like, wait a minute, let me think about that for a second. You think that's going to happen? Like when, and I think of professional development and I'm, um, I've said this out loud on the radio with the radio. I've said this out loud on the podcast a couple of times that I'm, I'm hoping to start a PhD this year. And, um, the, the focus of that would be professional development for trades faculty. And I'm, I wonder like this, the lessons that we're learning now, will they really make a difference in professional development of new faculty coming into the system? Or is this something that will be like, Oh, okay, we can, we can move on from this. And that, that was an interesting experiment, but you know, we're really going to go back and do it. Cause I'm hearing two very loud stories. One of, we got to change what we're doing, kind of like what you're saying and not embrace everything, be critical, but you know, let's use it. Now is the time we have the time to think and plan and design. And then the other side of the story is I can't wait to go back to the shop because you know, how, how do I teach this and how do I teach that? Do you think this is really going to make a difference in the professional development in the future? Well, Tim, it's funny you should say that because the <laughs> zoom I was on just before this zoom, um, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give away all the secrets because, you know, we don't really know where we're headed, but, um, I am working with some colleagues on just this exact question because there's a constellation of forces, you know, the, you know, there's the, the idea of really moving the needle on this stuff like you're talking about. And what you're saying is, or, or are faculty just going to go back to the way things are were before? But I also think there's a third thing that's almost even stronger, which is this locomotive that's running towards online learning. And basically what they're saying is we will put, you know, um, plumbing online. It's no problem. We're going to do a competency based. You know, you just click these 10 things and at the end you'll know everything you need to know about plumbing and the plumbers kind of know, Oh, that seems like maybe not great, but okay. And, and that train, which is a train I would associate also with um, some of the competency based models and also um, some of the online quality metrics, like quality stand uh, quality matters are these ideas of, you know, everything can be moved online. Everything can be um, unbundled into these little bits and people will be able to upskill and credential really quickly. We don't even need like liberal arts education. Um, we can just go and do all this stuff. And that's a locomotive, right? That That is really strong. I think what I'm hoping is that we can really build a, a competitor to that locomotive. Um, and this competitor would be more invested in, so it would be similarly invested in things that we know, for example, community college students really value flexibility, integration with their real life, multiple modalities. So like you have to get in there and sometimes like 
you know, work with the pipes. On the other hand, it's nice to have some online delivery so I can, you know, put my kids to bed and, you know, after a full day of work and then still go out and, and learn what I need to learn. So we want all of that agility and flexibility and um, the ability to use multiple modalities. But we want that in a way that's really matched, not just to markets, but to students and their needs. Um, and not everything is a cookie cutter. We still manage to um, inspire. We still manage to have students be able to think critically. We still work on um, improving things as we teach. So like one of the problems with some of those more standardized things is it's like, this is, you know, this is how the course is. It's like this from the beginning. And then every five years, you know, we update it and we get it certified again. Instead of thinking as students take this course, they are contributing, they are learning, we are developing, but we don't give faculty the skills, you know, necessarily to do that kind of work. So I'm working with some folks now to, to try to offer some um, alternatives in faculty development that we could share amongst our institutions because not every institution is well resourced around, you know, teaching and learning centers and, and having instructional design. Um, and I also think we need to tie that to some of our institutional needs right now so that community colleges or in the US, um, you know, public colleges, we're worried about a certain number of things, declining enrollments and um, budget pressures, retention, completion in community college conversions to four year degrees, like all sorts of things. We need to tie our faculty development into some of that stuff so that as we're building successful learners, we are also sustaining our institutions so that they can keep working. And I think faculty development has a long way to go to be able to not just promise faculty, hey, you'll be a better teacher at the end, but to be able to promise the institution, if you invest your faculty's time here, when they come out, they're gonna be able to help you build the institution of the future that you need. Um, and uh, that's, I think, what some of us are just starting to partner on um, and hopefully do that in kind of a consortium model so that anyone who wants to participate in and building that out can can help us. So I, I think there'll be more to come, but you know, there's there's hope. Um, do I think it's likely? I don't know. It's ask me after January 20th, maybe I'll feel more, more optimistic about the world. So I feel kind of the same way in, in our area, in our province, there's multiple public trainers that, that do plumbing, pipe fitting, steam fitting. And there's a few large players in the province and they've been large players for a very long time. They have big faculty and uh, you know, lots of experience, all that stuff. And one, one of the things that keeps coming up for me is this idea of competition. Well, if, if I share what I have with a smaller college in Northern British Columbia, we're going to lose students. And, and on the surface, you're like, huh? Okay. But then you just peel that back a little bit and go, are you sure that if we share our stuff with somebody who's nine, 10 hours away from us, that we're really going to lose student body to the point where we lose faculty? I, I just don't see that. Like to give it, to give the context, we have 
over 4,000 apprentices in plumbing in the province, in the system. That's a lot. Our, our schools are backlogged two and a half, three years for students to come in. Right. And you're worried about losing a job because we share our stuff with somebody. It just boggles the mind. So you make a good point. And I'm really resonate with that, with that longevity of thinking about, so what's, what's going to, what's going to help a student choose this institution over another one? Cause if curriculum is all the same, right. If, if that's a wash, right. What's going to be the difference it, from my perspective, it's, it's the engagement of faculty. It, that's what's really going to drive students to come to one as opposed to another, uh, along with some regionality things, right? Like just in certain regions, you're going to have different flavors, but it really resonates with me what you said there. Yeah. I mean, and fundamentally, you know, the ideal would be, we don't need competition in academia. It's not a market. Like we don't, there's enough knowledge for everyone. There's learning to go around. Um, we shouldn't, there's not a, this is not a scarcity model or shouldn't be a scarcity model. So competing for enrollments, like what we really want to do is get, more people who want to learn to be able to have access instead of fighting over the same, you know, privileged small group of people who can afford to go to college. Um, so I, and I also think people really, um, and this is a problem in academia going way back. I think a great thinker on this right now is Kathleen Fitzpatrick, whose book generous thinking, um, has really affected how I come at this quite a bit, but, to think about um, what would it truly look like to think about knowledge as a collaborative rather than competitive endeavor? How does that change everything from academic publishing to teaching and learning um, to service and, and everything besides? And of course, you know, that's why I work in open education. I, I'm super invested in lowering the cost of high priced learning materials, but that's not the you know, that's not the goods, right? The goods for me is thinking about whether it is possible to build a commons oriented collaborative approach to learning, particularly inside of a capitalist society. Um, I don't know if the answer is yes, but I, I, I enjoy leaning in those directions. Um, so that's, you know, I try just to like forcefully lean. That's my approach. Um, but a lot of what I work on now is really about looking into consortial models, collaborative models, sharing models, um, and thinking about revenue as, um, something that sustains those models so that everybody is keeping the common pool resources healthy. Um, so it's not like you do this outside of money. I understand, you know, there's revenue and, and expenses. But I do think the sort of neoliberal approach to, you know, everything's a, a market and everything only succeeds if it takes down a smaller fish is a, um, is a sad, a sad way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not into that either. And I get it. We got to keep the lights on. I get it. You got a family to feed. I get, I get all that. I I'm, I'm in that boat too. Right. Um, but it, it, the system could be so much better. Right. And you're going to have your rock stars and you're going to have your worker bees and everybody in between get all that. Right. But the system would be so much better if, if we took that collaborative approach to it and got rid of that competition based thing. Cause the thing that turns me off higher ed more than else is that it's a business it just drives me crazy. Right. And 
Yeah. I, I, I don't want to say anymore because I'll Mike from the undisclosed institutional show up. So that's right. It's all Mike's fault. He's such a radical. He plants these ideas in people's heads. And next thing you know, it's like, okay, here we go. We're going. Yeah. Mike's back. <laughs> Mike's back. Mike's back. But, um, so if, if you could, if you could, uh, I don't know if you're into the, into the world of giving advice. I know people don't like to phrase it that way, but if you were to, if you were to highlight something for me to keep my eyes open for in the next couple months, even the next year, as I learn to build my praxis around what I do and, and, and how I teach, what, what would you say? Hmm, that's a good question. I think one of the most eye-opening things for me over the last five or so years has really been about the value of collaboration. And I feel like a lot of folks think collaboration's value is in the thing you build, you know, the widget that you're able to put together with your team. But the value of collaboration is actually, I think, in the team itself, because that's where the widgets come from. You know, that's where the magic happens. So I guess my suggestion is we all need to look for ways to build more of these healthy team-based collaborative infrastructures and move away from the focus on the products because you can never stay agile enough if you're just focusing on, you know, this major, this market, this curriculum delivery, you have to build an institution that's able to respond to the changing shapes of the world. And the only way to do that is to build a team that can flex and move with that world. So I think we, at great peril, um, imagine that the value of higher education is in the programs that we offer rather than the, the people who come together to, to do the work. Um, so I would say anything you can do to highlight the, the value of the people that you work with, um, to let people know that they're valued um, if they work for you, um, to help people understand that, working together is probably going to be our best shot at um, staying afloat when the world seems to be shifting quite a bit. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that a lot. Robin, we come to the the end and I want to say a big thank you again for the time that you've taken to share this space with me. It's an honor. And uh, I have five quick questions. I call them the fab five. And just uh, helps me and my listeners get to know you a little bit better. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. Favorite food? Um, a burrito and almost <laughs> anything can be a burrito is my second look. Like you can put anything in a tortilla and it will be a burrito and that makes it better. You and my son have the same mindset because it doesn't <laughs> matter. It doesn't matter what I cook or what Marika cooks or anybody else. It's if, can I put this in a burrito? Like he yes. will mash it, chop it, mix it, and then put it in. Cause I'm like, and he, it's not even like it's portable for him. It's like, it's not like he wants to carry it around and it's just like, nope, that's how I want to eat it's it. It's just better. Yeah. <laughs> totally with him. 
Smart, smart man. Oh, okay. Uh, favorite movie or TV show? Um, my daughter is uh, pretty obsessed with anime. Um, and so I would say her first love was um, Spirited Away. And so that's kind of become our our most magical family family movie. So I'd probably uh, say that one. Cool. Favorite band or genre of music? Um, gosh, I, I, I'm not particularly musical. I kind of, uh, like NPR is like my <laughs> chosen music station. Um, so I would probably say, um, like anything acoustic more or less, like if, if somebody's got a, a is alone with a guitar, I, I tend to like oh, that. Okay. Very good. What's your favorite go-to tech right now? Piece of tech. What do you use? What's your favorite go-to? Um, I am fond of colored pencils. Mm -hmm. That would be one, I would say. Um, and another, yeah, Tim, that's going to be a hard question because I just, anything that somebody hacked together, um, on their own time and it works for what they need and for nothing else. That's my favorite tech. Um, I work with Martha Burtis in the collab at Plymouth state and um, you know, anything I dream, she, she, she just makes it materialize. And that's, that's my favorite kind of tech. I think uh, having a few skills and cobbling something together is always going to be better than something that, that works perfectly. That's awesome. Who's the most influential person in your life? Oh, um, well, there's obviously, you know, family, but I, I'm going to say right now at this moment, Tim Carson, I'm going to go with flying Dan. Um, he's not exactly a person. He's my dog, but I will tell you that um, in pandemic living, like mm. I don't know how people without pets are getting by. Um, yeah. This dog is absolutely the love of my life um you know besides phil sorry honey if you're listening <laughs> but um uh, i'm so grateful for him all the time and he's right here sleeping as i record this and uh and i just love him and every day i want to adopt 12 more dogs and i don't no. know what so far is keeping me from doing it but it's always almost happening so that's awesome we have a dog too his name's hobbs he's a boxer seven months old sorry oh, seven oh, years eight years seven. he's got his tail still but he just lives in the moment right like yeah. isn't just lives in the moment you come home you can oh, you can walk through the door so 20 great. times in an hour and he'd do the same thing like it's the first <laughs> it's, time he's seen you all day it's just the best i know and i really i mean i really am an anxious um person and i think for people with anxiety or you know a million different mental health issues uh, the dogs are just so grounding and um, he's a, he's a rescue and he came, he's a German shepherd. He came from an absolutely traumatic prior life. Um, and my God, like he just couldn't be happier to just wake up in the morning and do whatever. So ours is a rescue too. We rescued him from California and uh, uh, it's interesting because when it rains here, like the Pacific Northwest, we get, you know, 
380 days of rain out of 365, right? So uh, he hates the rain. Like he will, it's it's like you got to coax him out to go. And then he comes running back in. California people. (laughs) It's just like, like, dude, you've been in Canada for, you know, three quarters of your life. You should have adopted, you should have uh, adapted by now, but no, he, he still hates it. But, uh, He's so cool. Yeah, my dog came up from the south of the United States um, as a rescue. And the first time it snowed here, he looked at it and he was, he mostly loves it, but he was also kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, what is this? What's this? (laughs) I didn't sign up for this. Right. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again, Robin. Really appreciate the time. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you about all these important things. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do and the influence that you have. Uh, it's inspiring, encouraging, challenging, all that stuff. And you do it in such a way that makes it very friendly and warming. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tim. And, and same to you. Keep, keep up the good work. It's, uh, that's what we have right